Let's turn to uh, Amos, Amos chapter 9. I don't have any announcements, so that's a good thing. So we can move right on. Amos chapter 9. We're going to complete the uh, book of Amos this evening as we look at the last five verses of the, of the chapter and of the book. Let's read uh, these verses, 11 through 15, and then we'll get right into our study tonight. Now, everything up to this point has been all about judgment. It's been all about Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel being apostate. From, from its inception, from its beginning. And God has made it clear that uh, there is sure judgment coming. Though all along there's been the opportunities for repentance, for people to turn back to the Lord. But even still with all of that, these last five verses point to the restoration of Israel. What that tells us is that God is not done with his people. And I would almost have to say, and I, and I think I can say this with, with, with some confidence, that if he was done with Israel, he wouldn't be God. Because he gave them an everlasting covenant. People could argue the issue as, you know, uh, well, they blew it. Well, yeah, they blew it. How about you and me? We kind of blow it from time to time ourselves, don't we? But he had a very special calling for his people. And we've seen that throughout the last few prophetic books that we've been going through. We're going in order, as a matter of fact. So there has to be that understanding of God's love for his people. And it brought to mind, you know, the, uh, the statement that God made to them in Deuteronomy. I didn't love you because you were greater in number, or you were like the other nations. So I love you because I loved you. And that says a lot about how he deals with his people and how he deals with us who are now believers in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't take away the responsibilities that we have and the accountability that we have to him, to his word, and to one another. And as we saw throughout this book, there were times that the people of the northern kingdom in their prosperity looked down upon those that had nothing. And rather than be what God had called them to be as, as brothers as, as members of the same family, as it were, they mistreated their people. They made slaves out of them. And the Lord said, for these things, and for many others, but for these things, I want to judge you. So we arrive now to verse 11, and this is where God says to them, In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen, 
which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed. The mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel. And they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land. And they shall no more be pulled up out of their land. Which I have given them, saith the Lord. Thy God. From the very onset of our study in Amos, the, the condition that we, that we found the northern kingdom of Israel in could only be described as dark. Well, they were living in a dark place at a dark time because they had completely rejected the light of the glory of God. They completely rejected his light, his life, his truth, his word. They even rejected his gifts to them. And punishment was sure to come to this apostate nation along with the southern kingdom of Judah. And remember, you go back to chapters 1 and 2, and, the, and there were statements, great powerful statements of judgment against Judah and Damascus and Gaza and Tyre and Edom and Ammon and Moab. But the real focus would be on Israel. That God would take a shepherd farmer like Amos and send him to the north from the south to be a prophet to them, to tell them exactly what they needed to hear, the words of God to them in judgment. The fact was that there would be no future for Israel. There would be no there there, there would be hope. There would actually be more hope for the pagan Ethiopians that we mentioned last time in verse 7, since they sinned in ignorance and not against such great light and privilege as the Israelites against the one true and living God that they professed to serve. But out of the hopelessness, there would again be hope. The grace of Almighty God would triumph. That's what these five verses are all about in, at the end of, of chapter 9. The children of disobedience would become God's people again. You know, that's, a, that's an interesting thing uh, that Paul actually mentions back in Ephesians chapter 2. I know that I don't have that up here behind me, but that's okay. You all are probably more familiar with it. Uh, this, this is a wonderful statement. I'll, I'll read it to you here because I think it's important. Where, where Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says, You have, as he quickened, you as he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And, and it was just that, that kind of impetus of this, this one particular statement of Paul, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, which is telling us, you know, that they, they weren't getting their wisdom from, from the Lord. They weren't getting their, their understanding from the word of God. They, they had rejected all of that to do what they wanted to do, to worship the way they wanted to worship. 
to worship gods that they wanted to worship rather than to worship the one true God. So they were children of rebellion. They were children of disobedience. And then Paul goes on to, of course, tell the Ephesians, which is what you once were. In fact, it was what all of us were before we came to know Christ. So the children of disobedience there in the northern kingdom of Israel would become God's people again. And remember the words given through Hosea the prophet back in Hosea chapter 2 verse 23. Where it says, and I will sow her unto me in the earth and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And this is what I mean by that that heart of, of, of compassion that God has for his own people. I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people. Because that is how we're seeing a lot of these prophecies that are being given to the northern kingdom of Israel. In this particular case in the the book of Amos. You're acting like your, your own people. You're acting like the people of the devil. But he says, I will, I, I will say to them which were not my people, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God. Do you remember the moment that you said, you're my God now, Lord. You are my God. It came after living a, a, a life of, of, of deceit and of defeat. We were defeated going into life because we were born into sin. It was something that we would have until Christ came into our lives. And at that very moment, we who were the children of disobedience, the children of the enemy, were now the children of God. Thou art my people, he said, and thou, or and they shall say, thou art my God. Or consider the words given through the prophet Zechariah in Zechariah 13, verse 9. And once again, consider what they have been through, where they are, and where they're going. Because in Zechariah 13, verse 9, he says, I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say, it is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. Now again, all of these Examples are, are, are given to us by prophets who are pointing us to the restoration of Israel at the end time. Now some people would, would, would have argued maybe a hundred years ago. Well, there's no Israel any longer. So now the blessings of Israel belong to what? The church. But is that the case? Not really, because God has given us his own blessings to the church. And there are distinctions between the church and Israel in Scripture, very clear. He is saying that they are going to be redeemed, that they are going to be restored in these passages and many, many more. So this was all God's wonderful promise of restoration given to his people, his glorious kingdom, is coming to earth and true believers will inherit his kingdom. There are four detailed descriptions given of Israel's restoration here in in these last five verses of Amos. And we have to understand that one simple phrase 
places all of Israel's restoration at the time when Israel's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns to set up God's kingdom on on earth. And it is this phrase, in that day. Verse, Verse 11, in that day. Will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen? Throughout all of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament prophets, the mention of that phrase, in that day, is speaking of what? The day of the Lord. The day that is yet to come. The day that all the prophets pointed toward. And the very fact that through those seven years of tribulation that are outlined for us, from the book of Daniel all the way to the book of Revelation. And those two books themselves outline for us the very fact that there are seven years that the nation of Israel still have to go through as far as, uh, if you will, correction from the Lord. Seven years left. There was that separation that we saw in, in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, that outlined those, those days. Seven years left of this particular kind of judgment, correction, chastisement. But in fact, it is something done to bring them to restoration. So he says, in that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen and close up the breaches thereof. I'm going to patch up all the holes as it were. And I will raise up his ruins. And I will build it as in the days of old. In other words, as in the days of David and of Solomon. When it was an undivided kingdom. In that day. The day of God's glorious kingdom. The government of David. Symbolized by the word tabernacle. The word sukkah in the Hebrew which means a tent or a hut. The, fe- the, the Feast of, of Tabernacles is called, uh, you know, the, the, the festival of uh, Sukkot. Sukkot is, is a tabernacle or, a, or a, a tent or a, a lean-to or a hut. And it, and it brings back to mind the kind of attitude of heart that the kings of Israel were supposed to have. David was the prime example, one who rode on the foal of a donkey. How did Jesus enter into the city of Jerusalem the week before his his crucifixion on the foal of a donkey? Not on some major steed, you know, but on the foal of a donkey. On just a, a, a very humble animal. He doesn't call it a, a, a palace, he calls it a tabernacle. And take note that the whole nation will be restored and rebuilt in that day. Not just again, not just the northern kingdom, but Israel and Judah will now be one again. Under the name of Israel, which was the original name to begin with. And both the northern and southern kingdoms will be reunited by, uh, I'm sorry, both the northern and southern kingdoms will be reunited. My tongue wasn't working there for a second will be reunited by the Lord as one nation under the dynasty of David. But that's specifically specifically going to be 
the son of David, Ben David. Who is it? Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus will return to the earth to fulfill the promises given to David. Consider, if you will, the first words of the Lord to be given to David through the prophet Nathan. Words in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And listen carefully and read them and, and mark them down. As It says, and as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. Now remember, this is the Lord speaking through the prophet Nathan to David. As since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies. Also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. And when, the day, and when thy days be fulfilled and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with a rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. A lot of people were thinking that that was speaking directly to Jesus, but actually to the line of David, you know, beginning with Solomon and so on. But my mercy shall not depart away from him. And that's the important, that's the important line. That's the important thing here. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so did Nathan speak unto David. Did you catch what he just said in verse 16? Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Have we, have we come to grips with the understanding of what, how long forever is? Thy throne shall, shall be established forever. I'd say forever is a pretty good long while. Kind of goes along with eternity and everlasting, words like that. That's pretty clear. How we pass over that, I don't know. It's not, it's not speaking about the church. The church has its own blessings. But this is Israel's blessing from God. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Because these are, these are interesting passages because, you know, here we are coming to a time where the church of Jesus Christ celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ. That's coming soon, okay. Let's get past it tomorrow. Get past whatever tomorrow is. By the way, we talked about that on, on Sunday. If you weren't here, you didn't hear, make sure you listen to it on on the website or however you listen to it. But listen to the message from Sunday. Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7, listen, it says, Nevertheless, the, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. I'm not going to go into great detail about that right now, but, but just consider that uh, it's saying that there was a darkness in the time of, of the uh, children of Israel. Uh, all of this before the, the, re, the, the coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus. So it says, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation 
when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. But notice verse 2. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Now that, that is a, a, a common passage that is read oftentimes in the, uh, uh, the weeks prior to the, uh, the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. What the church calls Christmas. The people walked in darkness have seen a great light. Interesting how all that corresponds actually as well to the uh, Jewish uh, feast of, uh, of lights, Hanukkah, the feast of dedication really. But it's the Feast of Light. And where Hanukkah and Christmas do not really mix so much, there are a lot of connections. We'll, we'll talk about that sometime soon. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They, they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. I just read all that to get to verse 6, because verse 6 is another one of these passages that we're familiar with. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And I emphasize government because this is what we see being established in the last days. In that day that God says he's going to restore his people. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So even though we, we see these particular texts pointing to the celebration of Christmas, being used during that time, it goes way beyond that. It goes right straight to in that day, in the day where God is going to restore his people. So I don't want to put Jesus in a position where he just comes like once a year and, and we celebrate his birth, you know. Little baby Jesus, meek and mild. Because I tell you this, right now, he's not little baby Jesus, meek and mild. He's waiting to come as a conqueror. He's waiting to come as the one who is going to settle all accounts on this earth and in reality, all of his creation. And all of what is created, he's going to come to deal with the principalities and the powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age and the spiritual wickednesses that are in high places right now. And he's going to come and deal with the enemy himself, Satan himself. 
And none of them, none of them have a chance. It is written, it is said, it is done because he is God and there is no other. But he came the first time. When he came, he came because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life for God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. That was his first coming. When he comes again, he does come as judge. And that's very clear. We, we studied that in the book of John when we were studying John not long ago. Seems not long ago. I think it was over a year. So consider that. And these phrases here. When the, when the holiday comes, praise the Lord. Use that time to tell people about Jesus. And then work in that witness and testimony that you have, work it in that he's coming again. Because that's what this is about. It's about him coming again to sit on the throne of David. So it's not going to be a little baby sitting on the throne. It's going to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Micah chapter 5 verse 2, one more of those passages that we read and hear. Micah 5 2 says, But thou Bethlehem Ephrata. Bethlehem is house of bread. Ephrata means fruitful. In essence, it's saying, But thou fruitful house of bread. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. And, and we rejoice in reading that, and we say, see, Bethlehem, Jesus' birth. But it goes beyond that, because it points to what? It points to the fact that he's going to be ruler in Israel. Well, where's he, when, you know, did he rule in Israel? It, it, it was coming to Israel, and they put him on a cross. With the Romans. The Romans did it too. Jew and Gentile. But he conquered sin and death, didn't he? And he rose again from the dead three days after he was killed. Why? Because this is about him coming again. This is about him taking that throne in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. Which is in the very same area that we know that Abraham was about to sacrifice his own son Isaac, but it was called Mount Moriah. And it was there that we call Calvary, the place where Jesus died. But he will come back there, alive, and ruling, and being the ruler of Israel. May I ask you a question? Is there an Israel today? There is, and there has to be. Because he's coming again. Also, in that day, the second point here, the day of the Lord's coming kingdom. The nation of Israel will be the seat of universal government. Go to verse 12 now, Amos 9, verse 12. 
that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen. Remember that the heathen, the, the word heathen there is also, the, it's the word goy or goyim, which means nations. So it's not just the remnant of Edom. Why is Edom mentioned to begin with? Well, Edom's mentioned to begin with because this, these were, these were the, the, the most powerful enemies that Israel had at the time. The ones that hated Israel so much. Kind of a reflection of a lot of the nations that are around Israel today that hate Israel that much. But they will be possessed. And of all the heathen, the goyim, the nations which are called by my name, saith the Lord that doeth this. So every former enemy of Israel, such as Edom, as well as all other nations of the world, will look to Jerusalem as the very center of the government. You know, we, we see man today, I mean, it is, it is amazing. This, you know, we talk about the deep state in the United States. There's a deep state which is, 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 is underlying all of what's taking place in the world today. The deeper state is that very same realm that I talked to you about a little earlier, the principalities and powers, you know, Satan and all of the, you know, the host of, of, of darkness. And it has infiltrated the, the minds of people today to do one thing, to make the world a one-world order. To have a one-world government. To have a one-world religion. Why? Because they don't like the religion, or quote-unquote the religion, of, of Christ or of Christianity or, or the Jewish people because it's really Judeo-Christianity. That, that's hated today. It's hated more today than ever before. There's more anti-Semitism today than there has been in, 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 in many, many years. And we would think, I thought we were more sophisticated. I thought we were more advanced. We, we don't do that kind of thing anymore. Well, tell that to the Muslims. Tell that to all these other people that have just become so filled with... with uh, with hatred toward uh, God's people. I think that's the key. It's because they're God's people. And they, and they, you know, the world doesn't like it. Satan doesn't like the very fact that it is through God's people that the Messiah came. And he fights long and hard against you and against me, and against our Jewish brethren. But they're going to have to face the very fact that there was going to be one throne only. And yes, there's going to be a world government, but it's going to be a universal government with one throne and one king. And his name is Yeshua. His name is Jesus. It will, in fact, be the capital of the Lord's worldwide government, Jerusalem. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. Where it says, and there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. Well, Jesse, of course, was the father of David. And Aran, Aran shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. 
That is speaking of Messiah. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Jump down to verse 10 of the same chapter, and it says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign or a sign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. So that is certainly pointing to another time. It's going to be uh, in that day, and not uh, it hasn't happened, of course, at all. But to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamat and from the islands of the sea. He's going to recover the remnant of all his people and gather them together. <clears throat> Excuse me, consider, if you will, Isaiah 45. And this is, this is a very powerful passage here that I want, I want to read to you. Isaiah 45, verses 20 to 23. For it says here, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together ye that are escaped of the nations. In other words, the remnant of all the nations. Please, please understand that there is going to be war. There is going to be conflict. There is going to be in the last days... A, 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 a tremendous uh, uh, death count of people, if you will, both through natural and, and, and unnatural disasters. And uh, so there's going to be remnants in all nations. And this is what is being uh, given here, that they have no knowledge that uh, assemble yourselves and come and draw near together ye that are escaped to the nations. They have no knowledge that set up the wood of their graven image and pray unto a God that cannot say. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me. A just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. By the way, verse 22, that one particular verse was the very verse that was read by a, by a man in a church one day in London, England on a very, very snowy day. And there was so much snow coming down that particular day that not very many people came to church, not even the pastor. pastor couldn't make it there that day. This little church in London. And a young man of 15 years of age, being convicted in his heart to go to church, to hear the word of God. Though he thought he was a believer, felt the Lord calling him to go out. But uh, the, the snow was, uh, was too 
too much to go as far as he wanted to go to a particular church. Ended up walking into this one little church because it was open. And there where the pastor was, was not uh, present, one of the men of the church got up, someone who didn't speak very well as this young man would later write about. And he got up and this was his text. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none else. And at that very moment he was, this young man of 15 years old was being spoken directly to. And even the preacher just pointed to him and said, young man, God is saying to you, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And on that day, Charles Spurgeon came to realize that this was the moment that God had now called him. And he was saved that day. He came with the great preachers of the gospel. Look unto me. It goes on in verse 23 and it says, I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. And that little phrase, of course, we know that the Apostle Paul would take and tell us that every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The book of Philippians. How important the word of God is. Not just to today, but even for the day that is yet to come. Because in that day, in that day, thirdly now, in that day, the day of God's kingdom on earth, the economy of Israel and all other nations will be rebuilt. Prosperity will sweep the entire earth. We look at verses 13 and 14 and it says, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him that soweth seed. And the mountains shall drop sweet wine and all the hills shall melt. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. They shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. Let me give you a couple of quick, quick statements here. First of all, in, in verse 13, <laughs> brought to mind today that uh, I was just thinking how, you know, it says the plowman shall overtake the reaper. I mean, there, you know, there's so much being uh, uh, plowed there. They, they, and, and then it, it, the reaper comes along and, and gathers it all together. But as the reaper's gathering it all together, you know, the plowman's, the plowman's come right behind him and still planting again right after that, you know. And it brought to mind this picture of years, years ago, and I was a school teacher. I was, uh, we, we lived at a certain house that uh, had a humongous yard. I mean, it was huge. And I didn't like it because it was too bad. You know, I didn't like it when I had to go mow it, you know. And, and so there I am mowing this lawn, you know, and I felt like by the time I got to the end of the lawn, at the end of the lawn, that it just grew up again. You know, I mean, it's like, oh, man, I got to go back. I mean, I just finished mowing it, you know, that kind of thing. And that's the picture that's being given here by the Lord. I mean, the, the plowman is going to overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes, him that soweth the seed. The guy that's sowing the seed now, I mean, it's growing right behind him. And the guy who treads the grapes, 
It's already catching up to the one who's sowing the seeds. The second picture is, is really in verse 14 where it says, And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof. Even before that day, has God not already done this in Israel with his people who have come back into the land? And what have they done to make a land that was so desolate now, a land that is one of the, 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 the top exporters of fruit and flowers and of all kinds of of, of uh, products in this one little land, this one little country that is no bigger than the, the state of New, New Jersey. And, and when you go, and I know that some of you just, just came back and others, as a matter of fact, our, we had four people that went to go with uh, Calvary Chapel Appleton and they're over there now, but boy, today was a, an exciting day because I'm trying to get ready and, and get ready for y'all. And, and they're calling me saying, hey, where's the group from El Paso? I said, hey, I just send them, man. I just, who knows where they are? They were going to go through Turkey. They were in Istanbul. I said, oh, I hope they're not over there, you know, belly dancing or something. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but anyway, they finally got there at 10 o'clock uh, Tel Aviv time. So they're, they're there safe, praise the Lord. <laughs> okay. All right. But, but anyway, I don't know. How did I get into that one? I don't know. So, but anyway, they're there. Uh, but, but the, you know, the, 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 the people have, have just... You know, the, the, the scripture says they're going to go in and they're going to make a desolate land fruitful again. That's one of the signs that God is going to restore his people. And he's put them back into the land. And the promises that God has given to them will, of course, be completely fulfilled in that day. So, using farming as an example... Crops will, will grow so rapidly that the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman. The person who plants the seed of the vineyard will be overtaken by the person who's been treading the grapes. Crops and fruit will grow so fast that they can't be fully harvested. It will be as though the mountains and the hills are dripping and flowing with wine. That's the picture here. The farms and the businesses of the nations will hustle and bustle and be busily humming with activity. This is during the time of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. The strong economy through the nations of the world will guarantee prosperity for everyone. It's kind of a great picture to see today. We realize that the economy is one of those buzzwords that we find in politics all the time, especially here in the country. And uh, and it's important for every country. But uh, we're going to hear a lot of stuff in the next year or so with this new election coming up. But the Jewish exiles, I'll get back to that in just a moment. The Jewish exiles who are true believers in the Lord will return to Israel to rebuild their cities. This is what the prophecy is. They'll rebuild their businesses. They'll rebuild their houses. They will rebuild the public services of the nation. And finally, the Israelites will be able to live in stability. Planting permanent vineyards and gardens to produce enough food for each and every family. In other words, during the millennium, no one's going to be starving. No one's going to be hungry. In fact, when you read all around the, the verses that I've given you tonight and some other ones that are coming up, when you read all of the all of the texts in context, you realize it's going to be a time when 
when, you know, uh, some babies will, will you know, some children will live to be 100 years old. It's just a whole different time. It's bringing the world back to Eden, the way God had designed it, the way God had planned it. So again, you might, you might hear politicians today promising all of that and more. You know. A lot of, lot, of, lot of promises given in, in politics nowadays. But I want to warn you, take caution in what is being said. Because there will be no utopia in this life before the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Man will not turn this world into utopia. Man will not turn this world into a nirvana. Man will not turn this world into a heaven. Man cannot. And the reason is because at the fall of man, there was a law that went into effect. It was the law, it was the second law of thermodynamics. That everything that is created and made will wear down, wear out, and die. Nothing will continue. And besides, when you read Second Peter, the prophetic passage that is given to us there in chapter 3, what do we know? We know that the heavens and the earth as we know it today will all be destroyed. And God will create a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem but a new place where righteousness will dwell and where, he'll, where his people will live with him forever. So, the politics that we see happening today, it, it, it is, to some extent, kind of realized within the text of scripture. We try to talk about this as often as we can because I think as churches, as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to stay in tune with what is happening prophetically. But the one thing that we need to also remember and live by is the very fact that Jesus Christ, there's nothing, the, the return of Jesus Christ for his church, what we call the rapture of the church, is imminent. It is there's nothing that has to happen before that happens. Therefore, it can happen at any moment. And we must be ready for that. But still, we need to live in a manner that is worthy of his calling. We need to live in a way that honors and blesses the Lord all the time. So instead of the greater part of the year being spent on earthly troubles and earthly trials, such as wars and rumors of wars, Conflicts between nations and the like, death and dying. The whole earth in that day shall be spent in sowing and reaping the fruits of the earth. Consider, if you will, Isaiah chapter 65, verses 21 through 23. It says, and they shall build houses and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit they shall not plant and another eat. 
It's a, it, it was part of one of the uh, Abraham Lincoln's uh, uh, statements in a debate with uh, with Douglas, where he uh, said, "The time that we are living in cannot be like somebody says: you work, you sweat, you toil, and I'll eat." That's very similar to what this is saying. It says, they shall not build in another inhabitant. In other words, this is not like the earth of today. They shall not plant in another eat, for as the day of, the, of a tree are the days of my people, and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. Or you read in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 33 to 36, Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities. I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the waste shall be builded, and the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that pass by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. And then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and and plant that that was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. That is not just going to be the condition of just Israel and Jerusalem. That will be the whole earth. It will be completely changed. In that day... Fourthly now, the day of God's promised kingdom. The inheritance of the promised land will become a reality for the Israelites. Verse 15. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Now, look at the verse again and understand and I like driving home this point because I want us to realize that God's restoration of Israel is going to be a reality. That it is not, you cannot substitute the church for Israel here. You cannot substitute the church in, every, in, in any of the passages that we read tonight, in any of the, the, the cross-references that we've, that we've had. You cannot put the church in, that, in the place of Israel. This is speaking of his people. I will plant them upon their land. Has God given us a land? As as the church? No. I mean, you know, I mean, we we love the land of Israel when we go, and and we feel like it's our land too. And that is, you know, there's some truth to that, but the point of the matter is what land is he pointing us to? He's pointing us to heaven. No, this is about the land. Eretz. That's the land of Israel. Eretz, Israel, the land of Israel. They shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I've given them. Well, when did he give it to them? When he promised it to Abraham. Saith the Lord thy God. So the Lord will return all true Jewish believers to the promised land and they will live in unbroken peace and security. Take note that this is guaranteed by the Lord thy God. That's what he said. 
saith the Lord thy God. I, your Lord, have said this. So, picture living in a world of unbroken peace and safety. That's hard today, isn't it? Because we haven't seen any peace and safety, really. Is it any wonder that true believers in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel, savor and appreciate the thought of the Messiah's return to set up Christ's kingdom on earth? And what a promise it is for his people. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 10 says, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. God is, God is not, uh, you know, he's, he's not lax in the things that he says. He's very specific, very pointed in what he says. Moreover, will I appoint a place for my people Israel and, and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them anymore as before time. They're, they've been afflicted ever since they existed. From the very beginning. Isaiah 60 verses 18 through 22 says, Violence shall no more be heard in thy land, wasting nor destruction within thy borders. But thou shalt call thy walls salvation. Oh, wait a minute, they've got a wall. God built that wall for them. And they call their wall salvation. And thy gates praise. The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light in thy God, thy glory. Now that's some light that's really good. I I really pain for the people in, in California today. They are suffering so much. They have a government there, the state government, that is just so godless. So godless. And, and, they, and they, I mean, they're, well, I better not get started because I won't finish. But if I have time at the end, I'll tell you a couple of things. But they do so much, you know, that, that some of these fires are being blamed on on the Pacific Gas and Electric and, and all, but you know, you know where the fault really lies, really, is, is in the environmentalists. Because they don't they don't want anyone to touch the forests and stuff, and they, they need there, there's a certain way to to take care of those things. So when the fires start, it's not because, you know. Uh, okay, I gotta stop. Gotta finish. Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. Thy people also shall be all righteous. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. A little one shall become a thousand, and a small one a strong nation. I, the Lord, will hasten it in his time. So what about the Gentile nations at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to establish God's kingdom in Jerusalem? You know, it's significant that James, the Apostle James, quoted a a portion 
of Amos chapter 9 during the Jerusalem conference when the leaders discussed the matter of the place of the Gentiles in the church. And really the question <clears throat> was, must a, must a Gentile become a Jew in order to become a Christian? That's, that's kind of what the question was back in Acts chapter 15. And uh, in Acts 15, verses 13 through 18, it says, And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon had, had declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And, and, and to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, After this I will return. And we'll build again the tabernacle of David. This is where he's quoting Amos chapter 9. Which has fallen down and I will build again the ruins thereof. And I will set it up. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. Saith the Lord who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. So when the question comes about the Gentiles, here's the good news. The good news is that the Lord Jesus Christ has come to bring peace to every human heart, to bring peace to every nation on earth, to both Jews and to Gentiles. And all who truly believe in him and obey his word will be flooded with the peace of God, a peace that surpasses all human understanding. Every human being can experience the peace of God, not only in this lifetime, but also through eternity, if we know Jesus Christ personally, if we know him. As believers, we need to share that good news and the glorious hope of everlasting peace whenever and wherever we can. Let me leave you with these words of Jesus himself, where it says in John 14, verse 27, Remember this, this, these are words he tells his disciples before he gets arrested and is taken to the cross. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, we have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear with what is happening in our world today. Nothing to fear in what is happening in our country today. Oh, sometimes it raises our ire a little bit. But all in all, Jesus Christ is still Lord. Jesus Christ is still in control of all things. And Jesus Christ is coming again. That for sure we can count on. So may the Lord bless our study in, in the book of Amos as we come to a close now. And we'll just continue on in the book of Obadiah next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to uh, read, study, to know your word. May it encourage our hearts, Lord, as we're looking at the times in which we live, as we're seeing these things happening as the day of Christ is approaching more and more closely and closely. We're, we're becoming more aware of, of 
uh, how near that time is. But until then, Lord, may we live our lives in a way that just brings honor and glory to you. We thank you so much, Father, for what you do for us. We thank you that you sent your only begotten Son. And we're looking forward to his return. Bless each and every person here that needs you. And if they need anything from you tonight, may they receive it. As they seek your face, simply and sincerely, as they call upon you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. We pray. Amen. And amen. Shall we stand? Okay, I've got only a couple of minutes, so I'm going to tell you about <laughs> something that pertains to California because uh, uh, the governor of California, because of these fires that are going on today, and of course a lot of a lot of areas are you know without electricity, and and of course you know here's the thing you know they have uh, they they push for all of these environmental issues you know like like electric cars. Or, or, you know, putting uh, uh, solar panels on all the houses. I mean, you know, that's, that's becoming a law in, in California. But if there's no electricity, you can't, you can't do it. So it's, it's kind of like this, this vicious circle that they're in. So the governor of California, uh, Gavin Newsom, uh, stated just recently, if not today or yesterday, you know, that, uh, well, all the things that were happening were an act of God. And uh, I thought that was an interesting statement because... First of all, you know that that's kind of a statement that is adopt, uh, adopted by the by insurance companies. You know, when they have to deal with you know things that happen, well, there are certain things that happen, natural or unnatural, but they just call it the, an act of God. And you would think that if a person says, "Well, that was an act of God," that they believe that there's a God, which I don't believe that he believes that there is, to be honest with you. But here's the reason why I'm bringing this up is because when people say it's an act of God. They're not saying that because they believe in God. They're saying it because they can't stand God, because they don't believe in the power of God. And, 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 and that's, that's something that we see in Scripture when you read in the book of Revelation, where it talks about certain things that are happening. You, you know, you talk about global warming. People talk about today, they call it climate change nowadays. But I was looking at the Scriptures today in the book of Revelation, man, and it talks about global warming. And I, and I just got to read it to you really quick. Because it says, The fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which has power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. So when they say the act of God, and yet they call themselves atheists, what's up with that? Pray for California. Because there's a lot of believers over there. There's a lot of good people that love the Lord, you know. And God has them there for a reason. But man, I tell you, the, the politics in this country, it's crazy, insane. So you know what? God's in control. Jesus is coming.